0: To the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You know, whether
1: somebody's using drugs or not, their life is still valuable. Naloxone is a lifesaver. Remember that we're not our disease. I am not a bag of heroin. I'm stacy.
0: I'm just as normal as the next person.
1: My outlook has always been to educate because I think when you're talking about stigma here as an overall goal of yours, I think the only way to really gnaw away at that is to educate people.
2: Unfortunately, I have not had many positive experiences with the medical community, with anybody I know or anybody in my family. I hope that changed.
0: Well, opioid use disorder is a chronic condition. It's it's not something that you know goes away forever. It's not like you, you go through a treatment program and then suddenly it's not a problem anymore.
3: You know, we don't always get it the first time. And- Sometimes it takes us a couple of times before we finally get it. Don't give up on us so easily. Hi, my name is Logan Kissel and Let's Talk Stigma. Let's Talk Stigma is an educational podcast mini-series designed to highlight the stigma associated with opioid use disorder and the ongoing opioid epidemic. Each of these episodes will feature a number of different voices from individuals who have in some way experienced the effects of the opioid epidemic, whether in their social life, family life, or professional career. We hope listeners of this podcast will listen with an open mind, reflect on the stories they hear, and be able to recognize and combat stigma associated with opioid use disorder. In today's episode of Let's Talk Stigma, we'll hear from a number of individuals who will discuss stimulant use, what it is, how it differs from opioid use, and the stigma associated with it. We're also joined by the Foundation of Hope, an organization that focuses on providing resources for people who've been incarcerated. We'll hear from them about specific stigma that exists for presently and formerly incarcerated individuals who use substances. The American Addiction Centers define stimulants as a group of drugs that result in increased activity in the body. Common examples of these stimulants are cocaine, including crack cocaine, amphetamines, and methamphetamines, commonly known as meth. Dr. Janet Astle from Duquesne University School of Pharmacy specializes in educating student pharmacists on substance use disorders. We spoke with her about what stimulant use is and how it differs from opioid use.
0: So stimulant use, people use to increase their energy level. Stimulants really give an extraordinary boost to dopamine. So that pleasure response is huge. Stimulant use sometimes is not viewed as being as problematic or as dangerous as opioid use. Uh, Clearly, opioid use and misuse has grabbed the headlines. We are all very cognizant of the number of overdose deaths associated with opioid use. So I think sometimes maybe stimulant use is not seen quite as bad as perhaps the opioid crisis. So another big question is, why are we seeing this big leap in the number of overdose deaths connected to psychostimulants? Well, First of all, a lot of people who are using, probably unknowingly, these drugs are contaminated with fentanyl. This perception that perhaps stimulant use is not quite as dangerous, that is a fallacy that obviously people need to know that that is not the case, that folks are vulnerable and it can be deadly using stimulants.
3: Dr. Ashley Smith, a pharmacist at UPMC McKeesport and their detox unit, discussed with us some of the health concerns with stimulants and related it to opioid use.
0: I would consider it equal, if not just as dangerous. And I feel like people don't recognize a lot of the issues that can come with stimulant use, like cardiac issues and things like that. Stimulants make everyone feel like they're having a great time, and it's it's like that party drug. And or like people take stimulants to kind of like focus and get things done. A lot of people don't really like see them as serious say as opiates because people are just taking it on a Friday to have a good time or or they're taking them to lose weight or things like that. And so they don't see it as an addiction. Common misconception is that you can't get addicted to them. A lot of people consider them almost party drug or like an upper, if you will. Um, and so they just kind of use it for a good time. And it's not something that I, I need to get through the day, but it does frequently become an addiction for people.
1: Something that has happened over the last few years, too, is an increase in stimulant
3: use. Dr. Harrison Farrow, a pharmacist at UPMC Western Psychiatric Hospital, spoke with us about the patterns and stigma he's seen during his experiences.
1: Over the years, as opioids became more difficult to access, stimulant use was creeping up. And now... The thing that's really scary, and it's something I I see with a lot of patients that are admitted who have altered mental status, is opioids laced with stimulants.
3: Unlike opioids, there are currently no medications to treat stimulant use disorder. Dr. Astle commented on this issue and ways she sees pharmacists can improve treatment for patients with stimulant use disorder.
0: How do you treat an an individual who has a problem with a stimulant? We're just not clear on that. And so because we're not clear on that, what happens? Avoidance. We avoid the issue. So we all need to get much more comfortable with screening We need to get much more comfortable with building trust relationships with our patients and clients. We need to get much more comfortable with developing really good motivational interviewing techniques to move folks towards that desire to change, to change behavior, and to perhaps even seek treatment. We need to build really good relationships and strong relationships with other healthcare professionals. So if indeed we do identify someone who perhaps is at risk for a substance use disorder, that we have those strong contacts so we can do a warm handoff. We can complete a referral for that individual. And I don't think we're there. I think we need to get better at that. The mere act of conducting any kind of screening for a substance use disorder, even if nothing comes of it, the mere act of doing it can move people towards change. So we can't walk away with this perception that what I did was meaningless because that person did not agree to go right into treatment. It might take a while. And so even showing somebody kindness, Right. I think all of that is really important and being open to conversation and not being judgmental, because even in those small acts, we may have planted a seed and we may not see the results of that seed today. But maybe we will a year from now or three years from now or five years from now. So perhaps you've started that individual on that journey towards recovery, and we need to recognize that. I can tell you that guilt, shame, stigma prevent people from seeking treatment. It is a very difficult thing for individuals who are in treatment to overcome.
3: Dr. Faro discussed with us about the barriers we have for treatment with people who have stimulant use disorder.
1: With stimulants, we don't really have those go-to tools that we might use in terms of assessing what someone's use might be other than using ones provided by like the National Institute on Drug Abuse. There's not as many go-to and it's something even when I'm looking at someone's chart it's usually just a brief spiel on their on their stimulant use but Like tying it back to what I said earlier, it's important to know if they have say, any kind of use disorder because there's likely something else going on too in terms of someone's mental health, mental well-being, even if there wasn't a prior exposure that caused it. It's not just a substance use disorder. Someone who has a substance use disorder has a chemical imbalance because of the substance use, but there's also something else going on there. There's something deep down there is something at the root. This is very rare that I talk to a patient and they're like, oh, I just use drugs because I like to use drugs. And that's it. There's nine times out of 10, even more, like, there's something else going on.
3: Discussing stigma, Dr. Farrow mentioned.
1: Your physical image of someone who might be using specifically stimulants. A lot of people might think, oh, they're they're really thin, they're really malnourished, like their teeth are rotting. And I mean, that's like the minority of patients. And the reason I bring it up is because some people might feel Taken back and not want to approach those patients like, oh, they just don't look good. But some of the patients I've seen, most of them look like any other person you might see passing in a hallway. They look like normal people because they are normal people. They just happen to have a substance use thing going on. Whatever you do, you need to leave your personal beliefs at the door. You have to set personal things aside in order to treat people. If you signed up to be a health professional, your personal beliefs should not impact how you're, you're treating someone.
4: One of the common misperceptions for people who use stimulants is there's a, a racial lens that's been attributed to it.
3: Michael Williams, the director of the Adult Diversion Program at Foundation of Hope, talked with us about the stigma associated with stimulants. If
4: more people understood that this is a very well-crafted way of getting the public on board with criminalizing a certain demographic of individual, and that historically in the United States, if you take a step back and you look at Different substances, there's usually a race or ethnicity attached to it and a public stigma that's then adopted. It makes it easier, frankly, for law enforcement to and be invasive on that group of people and, and people accept it. And I think most people don't realize they're being led down that path.
3: Our conversation with Michael Williams and Marianne Patton at the Foundation of Hope focused on how substance use has been criminalized and additional barriers incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people face when trying to seek treatment for substance use disorders.
4: Foundation of Hope is an interfaith organization that works with individuals who've been impacted by the criminal justice system. We have our aftercare program, which specifically supports anybody who's been incarcerated and that could be spent a few hours in jail. And then our, our adult diversion program, which I'm the director of, works with a similar group of individuals who've cycled in and out of incarceration and services, but with a focus on substance use and mental health. It's becoming more and more understood how our social biases play into our, our the care that people receive. And so I think being a person of color or being a person from a rural or poor area seeking that help might also get different treatment.
3: What are specific barriers that formerly incarcerated people face when seeking treatment for stimulant use disorder?
4: When people use drugs recreationally all the time, but for someone who's been incarcerated, there's an extra set of eyes on you. There's the potential that your substance use could get you reincarcerated. It can be a barrier for you seeking employment, housing, things that give us stability in our lives. Someone who doesn't have a home, doesn't have employment, and might be struggling with substance use, can't get stable. And maybe they also are afraid to seek help because they know that they could get in trouble. And that's a barrier for them where someone else can go to a rehab, call up their therapist or their doctor and say, hey, I need help with this. You don't necessarily have the luxury of resources that other people do. And again, it puts you at risk to even admit that you use substances. It could be a requirement of your probation or parole that you don't use substances. There might be drug testing involved. It's a lot of fear-based barriers, as well as just understanding what access is out there for you. There's a stigma of, of having been incarcerated and in the way that people treat you. So, if you go in to get help and someone treats you like you're a pariah because you have a conviction that's going to make you less likely to seek that help i think even our our healthcare providers aren't necessarily trained in cultural competency and and empathy so those people who are seeking help with substance use that are formally incarcerated often have real trauma real ptsd So I think it's important that people who are formerly incarcerated have resources that they know of even before they leave so that they can go right when they get out, seek help similar to our program.
3: Marianne Patton, case manager for the Adult Diversion Program at Foundation of Hope, gave us some insight on the different types of treatment programs.
2: Many programs out there. When you get out, especially if you're mandated by probation or parole to be in an outpatient program, are absence-based. It's number one hard for people who use substances to get to a healthcare provider to then screen for any sort of treatment. And if they do get there, it's very one-track mind-esque. They have to have a diagnosis, be able to get into a treatment program, and a lot of the times, sometimes that diagnosis isn't exactly correct. And if we can stop the rigidity of the system, it would be a lot easier to then have empathy and a rapport or a trusting relationship between the individual and a healthcare professional or a provider that's able to just sit there, talk with you, and through that conversation, screen you, which is just figuring out what services you need by a conversation. And through that, it just becomes more humanizing.
3: What are the different stigmas formerly incarcerated people who use drugs experience?
4: I've talked to people about it, and some of the responses just kind of blow my mind. They're like, well, why should they get anything? They're criminals. People want to gravitate to the worst, most heinous crime in their mind and associate that with someone who's been uh, charged with a felony or put in prison. And even... Somebody who's committed murder, there's a very low recidivism rate associated, it's like a 1% recidivism rate associated with murder, because usually there's a lot of remorse. It's often done in the heat of passion. So I think people don't understand that, A, not everybody in prison is dangerous. And certainly they're going to get out someday, hopefully. And so while they're there, if we can help them enrich their lives, they're going to be better situated to, to be successful when they do come out. And I think a lot of people just want to throw prisoners away. And so I think if we can start to change the discussion around it and, and make it so where substance use isn't criminal behavior. It's very human behavior and remind people of that and also help them to understand the benefits of taking on these harm reduction principles, that it doesn't just benefit the individual, it's benefiting society generally.
3: Ann commented.
2: One core principle of harm reduction is accepting that drug use is a part of our world and we're not going to eradicate it, even if we want to. So by meeting someone where they are, if they're not ready to stop using or they don't want to, they won't feel pressured to live up to someone else's standard. And then they're going to have more energy to focus on things that they do want, like housing, employment food security, and so on.
4: Our first program participant was a story that stays with me. This person came to our program in December, right before the holidays, and he had been in and out of incarceration due to his substance use. He was addicted to opioids. And he had started to see the pattern himself that around the holidays he would get triggered and he would end up in jail. And he wouldn't get to see his kids for the holidays. And he was cycling through this over and over again and, and also living in an unstable situation a not very good three quarter house. We're like, all right, what do you need? You know, and he's like, I need I need some treatment. I need, um, I need toys for my kids. Like I, I wanna be able to see my kids this year. But he needed to get into stable living situation. So we were able to get him those things before the holidays. And because of that, he had a great holiday. He had a great Christmas with his kids. He got him toys for his children. He was able to be the parent he wanted to be. And it hasn't been a straight path for that person. I I have people in my family who've suffered from different forms of addiction, mainly alcohol, and um, it's not a straight path. So they will want to... Feel more stable and then they will relapse back into using their substance and whatever stability they've built may crumble completely or, or a little bit but the great thing about our program is we're here no matter what and so he's learned that that him not being able to keep it up isn't going to prevent him from getting support and i think that that is is a huge lesson for service providers but also i think for people generally who may have gone through this themselves or may not be able to relate to someone who's experiencing these things. They really, at the end of the day, we all want the same things. We want, we want to feel loved. We want to relate to our families in a healthy way. And that's what his goal was.
3: Regarding recovery journeys, Dr. Farrell mentioned the similarities to other chronic health conditions
1: what are relapse rates for diabetes and hypertension compared to substance use disorder? They're the same. People relapse all the time. Their blood pressure goes up from doing things they're not supposed to do. For diabetes, someone's sugar might go up for eating things they're not supposed to do if they stop exercising. That's technically a relapse, but we don't really think of it that way for these other conditions. We think of it more for these substance use
3: disorders. We spoke again with Marianne and asked her what she wanted all healthcare providers to know.
2: Using substances doesn't make you worthy of less than someone who doesn't. Many times people turn to substances to cope with trauma because it's the only way they know or they just like the way it makes them feel. So I think my number one thing would just be to be compassionate Be curious and just to make an effort not to stigmatize.
3: This podcast was developed by the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy in partnership with Duquesne University School of Pharmacy. Funding for this podcast was provided in part by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.